Hi, Bert Alcorn here, lead pastor of Anthem Ventura. You're listening to the Anthem Ventura podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen and track with our teachings. The sermon you're about to hear has been prayed and labored over, and we really do hope you find this useful and an aid of your discipleship to Jesus. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Anthem, visit us online at anthemventura.org, or you can download our mobile app from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Enjoy the next hour or so. We have prayed that God would use it in profound ways in the lives of anyone that may hear it. Thanks so much. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 10. While you open up there, I'll just give you a little bit of context for where we are throughout the book of Matthew. Uh, We have been journeying throughout Matthew since about May. We'll be here another two some odd years or so, just marinating and soaking up uh, the book of Matthew uh, and just really enjoying, honestly, the life and ministry teaching uh, of Jesus and what that means for us, what he's calling us into. Uh, And so for those of you, if you kind of, you know, have missed some weeks, or if you're new with us, or if you've never spent too much time in Matthew before, I want to give you a little bit of a picture contextually where we are, just to help you know uh, where chapter 10 really falls in the story. Uh, And so I've been showing this uh, slide a little bit, just the beginning to help give us some context. Uh, But the very beginning of Matthew, Matthew's trying to do something really intentional. Matthew is trying to connect Jesus to the Old Testament, Because Matthew's audience is primarily a Jewish audience, which means they have a rich history with God and this expectant Messiah King that's been talked about for for hundreds and thousands of years should look like a certain way. And at the very beginning of our study in Matthew, we took some time to understand the cultural and historical landscape of first century Palestine. And what we had discovered together was there had been about 400 years since the closing of the Old Testament to the opening of the New Testament, where Jesus, or I should say John the Baptist, comes on the scene proclaiming uh, the coming of this Messiah. And during those 400 years of quote-unquote silence, people like to call, Israel had drifted. They had drifted in their lifestyle, in their worship. The the political and religious leaders of the time had started heaping on extra rules and regulations, and the people of God looked very different at the beginning of Matthew than they looked like at the end of Nehemiah, which is the last kind of historical chronological book of the Old Testament. And so we have a discrepancy in who the people of God are supposed to be And we have the very beginning of Matthew where he lays this apologetic or this case for who Jesus is, who he claims to be, and why he has the authority to teach and do the things that he's doing. And that's those first three chapters. And in chapter four, we have Jesus entering ministry, and he starts his ministry uh, after his temptation in the desert by teaching, by teaching a lot, by taking a huge chunk of time with his disciples and the crowds to talk about life in the kingdom. And so chapters Four, five, six, and seven are all about Jesus announcing uh, what the kingdom of God looks like. And it's, and it's kind of doing two things. It's a manifesto or a mission statement for his disciples that are following him. So those who've said, yes, I'm all in Jesus, tell me more. This is kind of clarifying what life in his kingdom looks like. But because there's also the crowds nearby, those who are just interested in Jesus, this is also a standing invitation to anyone and everyone to join into this life. 
And so that's what's happening. And at the very end of uh, chapter 7, Jesus finishes his teaching and people are awed at his authority to teach such things because he has more authority than the religious leaders of their time. And, and so chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7 are all about Jesus announcing the kingdom of God. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all about Jesus demonstrating the kingdom of God and really showing his authority to bring the kingdom into the day-to-day lives of, of regular people. And so we have nine stories of Jesus radically and miraculously affecting the lives of people, whether it's uh, kind of showing his authority and dominance over nature, whether it's casting out demons or healing people's diseases and afflictions. We have these incredible stories of people's lives being changed, and and they're kind of set up in, in triads, so these three stories, and in between each set of three stories is Jesus's call and clarifier to discipleship. And so we see in these chapters, as Jesus is healing people, he's also clarifying what it means to be his disciple. And you'll notice, for the religious elite, it seems as if the bar is really high. So those who think they have it all together, Jesus raises the bar for them. And for the lowly, the the poor in spirit that he meets, we see his grace is on display. And so these chapters are a really interesting story of how Jesus is bringing the kingdom into the lives of everyday people. And now in chapter 10, uh, we really see Jesus preparing his disciples to go out. So this is Jesus' second big block of teaching. There's five of them throughout Matthew. And so he'll kind of teach for a while and then go do some things and disrupt people's lives and kind of the status quo. Then he'll teach a little bit and he'll do that over and over again. And so we're in his second block of teaching and he is preparing his disciples to go out on mission. So what's unique about this is by this time in the story, Jesus had already done two laps around the Capernaum area. So if you remember our map, I'm sorry I don't have it, I had it last week. If you remember our map from last week, we have the Sea of Galilee, and a lot of Jesus' ministry is happening on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, around this town called Capernaum. He's done two laps around there of teaching and, and healing and demonstrating his kingdom, and he's about to send his disciples on that same lap. So he's going to send them out to a lot of people who've heard about Jesus before, a lot of people who've maybe seen these miraculous works, and Jesus prepares them to go out. And so that's where we find ourselves in the story this evening. And so we're going to take the first uh, 15 chapters together of Matthew chapter 10. Okay, so here we go. And Matthew writes, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go, rather, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse leopards, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, no copper for your belts. No bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. 
And if the house is unworthy, let your, if your house is worthy, let the peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Okay, <laughs> Let, let's pray together. Uh, Father, you're so good. Thank you for your word to us. Um, thank you for this journey we're on as a church through the book and the gospel of Matthew. Uh, thank you for what we have seen and, and learned about Jesus. Uh, and God, just like we pray every single week, would just being exposed to the life and ministry of Jesus change us to be more like him. And so God, we just I'm still thinking of that, that song from earlier in the evening. God, would our hearts be open to you and, and ready and available for you to change and transform us to make us look more and more like your son, Jesus. And Father, we also just uh, are thankful for the kids that are with us uh, this evening and all of our kids' workers serving. Would just the gospel go forth in, in our different kids' classrooms as well? And would they leave just as transformed as, as their parents here in this room do? Uh, and so, Father, we do submit this time to you. Um, we ask that it would not be uh, anything that I'm saying that it would change people. It would be your spirit uh, changing people. But, Father, would you help me teach and preach in a way that is faithful and, and honoring to the scriptures and, and what you would have for us as a church. Uh, and, Spirit, would you just illuminate the text for us together that we would grow, learn together, and change as a community to be more like you. Amen. Okay, there is a lot here in, in these 15 verses. Um, and all throughout Matthew, uh, Jesus' central message, or his, his kind of primary role, has been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, or he's been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, kind of the combination of those phrases. But that's what he's been doing. He's been teaching on it and bringing it into people's lives. And so in, in Matthew 4, verse 17, we have this, this summary of what Jesus is going to do for like the next 20 some odd chapters. That he was preaching, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This has been his primary message for the first 10 chapters. And what he is doing here in chapter 10 is giving that role and responsibility to his disciples. This is important because this is the first time that it's happening. So up until this point, Jesus' disciples have been in the passenger seat of this situation so far. It's been Jesus who's been teaching, Jesus who's been healing. He's been out front. He's been taking the criticism. He's been taking the heat from religious leaders. He's been the one that's kind of been the focus of the attention up until this point, and his disciples have just sort of followed him around like little ducks with their mom. That's kind of the, what's been happening with the disciples so far. They're just seeing everything Jesus is doing, and these are the guys that are, are sticking around. And chapter 10 is crucially important because Jesus is sending his disciples on the exact same mission that he's been on. He says, look at everything that I've been doing. Now go do this. He's been calling people to his mission. He's taught about life partnering him uh, partnering with him in his mission. He's demonstrated the power behind his mission, and now he's sending others to carry out that same mission and giving them authority to do it. This is huge. 
And I love how Jesus' ascending of his disciples is framed in the prayer at the very end of chapter 9. And so if you weren't with us last week, go online, listen to the podcast. The teaching is really important. It was basically a sermon all about prayer, but uh, sometimes we need to ignore the chapter uh, markings and headings in our Bible because this is all one story that is happening right here. And so just, I want to rewind just a little bit. Go back to Matthew 9, uh, look at verse 37. After Jesus Um, just has compassion on on the crowds because they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed. They're helpless. He's kind of done two tours of Capernaum, which are a whole bunch of Jewish cities, and he's seeing how God's people are not being led to live in God's way. And he has compassion for them. And he commands his disciples to, before they do anything, pray. In verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus sees a ripe harvest. For Jesus, the problem is not that people are ready to live a life following after him. The problem is there are not enough workers to reap that harvest. And so he says, pray. Pray for more workers. And that picks up immediately into chapter 10. And I love how Eugene Peterson in the message translation kind of talks about this first verse. And he says, The prayer was no sooner prayed than it was answered. Jesus called 12 of his followers and sent them into the ripe fields. He gave them power to kick out the evil spirits and to tenderly care for the bruised and hurt lives. It's such a, such a cool picture. I love how Peterson puts the framing of this. Just as soon as the prayer was prayed, it got answered. Who is praying for workers in the harvest? Who's praying? Yeah, the disciples. Jesus and the disciples. Who was the answer to that prayer? Yeah. I love how God does that sometimes. He's very sneaky like that. Sometimes we have to be prepared to be the answer to our own prayers. Uh, But I love what Matthew does here. And he says, first pray, ask the Lord for more workers and be ready to go and obey that call. And he takes a moment here in verse 2, 3, and 4 to really identify each person, each apostle. And we have this kind of same list in in Mark and and Luke and Acts as well. But he takes a moment to identify the 12 apostles. Simon, who's called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. John, his brother. Philip, Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Who is, it's this Matthew, by the way. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I don't know what kind of scriptures encourage you guys the most. Typically, it's not a list of names and genealogies, right? You guys, you guys were around when we went through Nehemiah as a church. We had some brutal weeks, right? It can be a little rough, but I I'm actually have become very encouraged by texts like these because they remind me uh, that God is in the business of saving anyone and everyone, And scripture does a really interesting job highlighting the diverse group of people who are following after Jesus. A key component of the gospel is that God goes after anyone and everyone, no matter how different they are, and he's rescuing them out of the domain of darkness. There's no hierarchy, no favoritism, no elitism. God is saving all kinds of people. And we've learned uh, a couple things about, about some of these guys so far. We have a very rich history of Matthew himself, the guy who writes this book. 
that we find a couple chapters earlier. That he is the farthest from the far. He's like the worst possible guy to be one of Jesus' disciples because he's so far from living a life of worship towards God. We have political revolutionaries next to tax collectors, next to smelly fishermen. This is a weird group of people that Jesus has established. And just a simple list of names just so reminds me. And it even reminds me to look around a room like this and just kind of recognize how different we all are and and all of our differing stories and backgrounds that God wants to use each and every one of us. There's not like a special background that God is looking for. He's like, oh, perfect. You went to seminary. You're my guy. There's none of that. A list like this reminds me that God loves the diversity in his family, the incredible mix of people that have been changed by the gospel of grace and want to take that message to the world. So the names are here. I don't know, maybe for that reason. Maybe it's one of those faith builder things. Maybe it's just good record keeping. I don't know. But we know who Jesus is talking to and we know a little bit about what he is trying to do. And, and I, we can read a lot into it, but there are two really big things that, that we should be taking away from Jesus' calling of his disciples. And the first is that he is replacing Israel's ungodly leadership. So just in the few verses before, remember that God's people were characterized as sheep without a shepherd. Technically, they had shepherds. They had Pharisees and Sadducees. They had interpreters of the law. They had guys teaching in the synagogue. They had guys instructing these new young children that were growing up in the synagogue rabbinical system. But Jesus was saying that they're not being led the way I want them to lead. Even though there may actually be leaders there, they're leading people outside of the will of God. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus, in his kind of instatement of, uh, of putting in apostles, is replacing Israel's ungodly leadership. And the number 12, if you've spent any time in the Bible, you know is kind of a big deal number. And I think we're, we're meant, just like Matthew's audience is, is meant to think of, the significance of the number 12. Jesus could have picked any amount of disciples he wanted to, and I think he's teaching us something uh, that he picked 12. And, and of all the pictures we have in the Bible, the one that is the greatest, the 12 sons of Jacob, the tribes of Israel. And so if you're reading in our Bible plan along with us, you know we just finished off some of that story at the end of Genesis, right? And we have God's people flourishing and growing under these 12 patriarchs of Israel. And from then, kind of the the system of government, of of leadership, of of teaching, worship, everything has been kind of centered around these 12 tribes or 12 families. We find out throughout the Old Testament that some of these families had specialties. Some were the priests, some were the warriors, and and we kind of have different characteristics that pop up throughout the Old Testament, so much so that it is still ingrained in the culture in Jesus's day. But now the 12 were not just a sign that God was redeeming Israel and working through Israel. The 12 here signifies that they might be able to be part of this redeeming and restoring process. And this perhaps explains why, at least here in Matthew chapter 10, that Jesus is limiting his mission and ministry to the Israelites. Did you guys catch that? He says, don't go to the land of the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans yet. And of course, after Jesus 
dies on the cross. He raises, he commissions his disciples there to go throughout the entire world. But for right now, Jesus sees significance in bringing the message of the kingdom of God to the Israelites first so that they might have a chance to respond. It seems like a lost cause to me in knowing some of the story here, but God's done that before, right? In the, in the very beginning of Exodus, right? God gives Pharaoh so many chances to repent, to turn from his ways, and to recognize his authority and let the Israelites leave Egypt. God continually gives them an opportunity after every single plague, we see that with the story of God's people, that they mess up and God gives them opportunity after opportunity. God sends prophets to call people back to worship God and stop worshiping idols. He doesn't neglect them. He goes after them. And finally, at the end of the Old Testament, they're in exile, they're in slavery. God is giving them another chance. He's taking that message. He's not done with Israel. They were always meant to be a light to the nations. They were always supposed to represent who God was to the world, and he gives them an opportunity to respond. Look at Exodus chapter 19. We see the be- kind of the beginnings of this commitment and covenant to the people of Israel. Uh, Exodus 19 verse 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Okay, so just kind of where in the story they've just been brought out of Egypt and they're starting to identify what this relationship with God is going to look like. And, and God starts this process. And he says, For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God talking to Moses there, but he says, you will be my people. I will be your God, and you're going to be to me a kingdom of priests, meaning your whole job on earth is to reflect what I am like to all of the other nations, that they may see me and worship me. Every one battle of the Israelites was meant to display the glory of God. Every miraculous provision God had for the Israelites was meant to display the glory of God. And this couple of verses reminds us that there's an ongoing story that is happening. And I fear sometimes we read the Bible like kind of those New Testament-only Bibles and forget all of this history that God has had with his people up until this point. These verses and what Jesus does reminds us that he's coming in not in a vacuum, not out of nowhere, but as part of this ongoing story that God has had with his people. And this continues through Jesus' ministry. We have a weird little picture. I'll read it. It's kind of fun, and it's funny. It'll make you do some study if it weirds you out a little bit. But in Matthew chapter 5, just a few chapters later, we see Jesus' mission is still primarily to the Israelite people. Matthew 15, verse 21. Oh, Yeah, there we go. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman, read non-Jewish, from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. This sounds kind of rude, right? And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's that phrase again, guys. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. 
And he answered, it is, not right. it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Super rude again. She said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. I love on display in those couple of odd verses, kind of Jesus' primary mission is still his primary mission. He's going to the lost sheep of Israel, but his grace knows no bounds. After his resurrection, Jesus will send his apostles to the ends of the earth with this gospel message. But right now, there's an immediate and urgent task. Seek out the lost sheep of Israel. And so the first thing Jesus is doing in these few verses is replacing Israel's ungodly leadership, just showing us there's an ongoing story here. And the second thing is he is starting to build his new church. He's also using this moment to start building his church, which Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.20 is built on the foundation of who? The apostles. Yeah, well, Christ, for sure. The apostles. Yeah, absolutely. He's using this ragtag group of dudes to show us that it's no longer the religious elite who hold all the power. But Jesus is using everyday, ordinary, and even rebellious people to build his church. And this is really the second half of that means for mission we talked about last week. Right? So the motive for mission, Jesus' mission here is compassion. His heart broke for people. And how he was going to accomplish that mission was through prayer and people. And so Jesus tells us to pray for more laborers to go out into this ripe harvest and be ready to obey. This is how Jesus will accomplish his mission, through prayers and through his people. It means prayer matters. It's not useless. But also, people matter. Okay, then Jesus sends these guys out. And so I, I don't know. Uh, so yeah, I want to show you a couple of things here. Uh, and I think some things that are important here because the, the language or the term of apostles can get a little bit dicey depending your spiritual heritage. I'll say that much. And so just some helpful clarifiers here. Jesus calls them apostles. And kind of the noun form of this word is, is sent ones. I just wanted to show off a little bit. This, how pretty does Greek look on a big screen? Sorry, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But anyway, it's helpful for you to see that I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, In Matthew 10, verse 2, we have this word apostolos, which means sent ones. It is the noun form of apostles. And so this is who the apostles are, the 12 original apostles. But in verse 5, Jesus doesn't use that same noun anymore. Instead, he uses a verb, which means like to be sent out here. And we find these two different words have different meanings as we continue on through the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says some are given as apostles for the church. And so not everyone is apostle. But also throughout scripture, all are to be sent out. Apostello. So we have this weird dynamic that not everyone is an apostle in a church, but everyone is apostolic. Is that weird to think about, that each and every Christian functions apostolically in the story of God? It just simply means we are all sent. We are all missionaries. We are all, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, ambassadors for Christ, bringing his ministry of reconciliation to the world. 
They are first described by the identity of being the sent ones. Then they are described by the action of being sent. And it's that word we see come up over and over and over again through the New Testament that each and every Christian is a sent one into wherever God has sent you with this message and ministry of the gospel. Jesus says in John 20, 21, that he is sending us all. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that that he says anyone who's been changed by the gospel has a responsibility to take that gospel to others. And that same authority that characterized Jesus' ministry, Jesus gives to his disciples to go out and do these really radical things like heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, give without pay. It's wild. And, and we actually see throughout chapter 10, he gives more instructions for this mission that Jesus sends them on. And the point here that we're meant to take away is as we start reading this list of instructions to the disciples, we see here that the disciples are supposed to do the things that Jesus did. Be like Jesus. Teach like Jesus. Do the things Jesus did. The apostles are to go out in the same way that Jesus has gone out before. Go preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and casting out demons. Their job as missionaries is to imitate Jesus. And they've been with Jesus. They've been two loops around Capernaum so far. They've been across the sea and freaked out a Gentile town and they've come back and they're seeing how he's teaching and how he's leading and how he's healing people. And Jesus says, go and do what I've been doing. But you're not gonna do it in your own power I'm going to give you authority. They go out in the authority of Jesus to imitate Jesus. And really, this is at the heart of, of Christian music, as whether we can split hairs on whether these instructions are particular for us or just describing what Jesus did for a certain group of people, the point and the heart of Christian mission is to imitate Jesus. Be with him. Do the things he did. Imitate him. And I love how casual Jesus is with this. He says, as you go, preach the gospel of the kingdom and heal everyone and everything. Cast out demons. He's so casual with these instructions. And I imagine if I were to put myself in the disciples, the apostles' shoes, I'd be pretty freaked out in these moments and terrified. And it probably was terrifying. But with full confidence, Jesus sends these, these guys out on this mission. Whatever authority Jesus has, he gives to them and has the full expectations that they will be able to do the things he's done. And that's really a lot of the point here, is that going with Jesus' authority to do the things he's done. They're not going with their own authority. I think for us, as we, we look at this, we can be encouraged by the reality that the things that Jesus calls us to, he will equip us to. He doesn't send us out ill-equipped or forgotten about. But he says, I'm going to equip you. You're going to go out with my authority. And the things that I'm going to call you into, I'll prepare you for. Okay, so really where I want us to, to spend some time landing with this particular passage is some realities that we have for Christian mission from this text. So there's three of them, and I want us to see really important clarifiers and reality of the mission we are all called to that Jesus exposes for us. And the first reality that we see here is to trust God 
instead of our endless preparations and provisions. He says in verse 8, Jesus says, You've received without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Okay, so Jesus is telling them, don't like saddle up the donkey as you go out. Just go and trust that you will be provided for. There's a guy named Victor uh, Cooligan, who is a professor in uh, a Bible College, a Bible Institute in, in Cape Town, South Africa. And he wrote this book, kind of has a provocative title, called Ten Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. Sometimes I feel like my list is a lot longer. But he says in the preface of this book, go ahead and put that quote up, I'll read it. With the rise of the health and wealth gospel and prosperity preaching, we have become accustomed to a comfortable what a friend we have in Jesus, Messiah. It is a picture of Jesus, I call, he calls, Jesus light. Great taste, less demanding. Jesus is just interested in my happiness and nothing more. He wants me to be financially comfortable, physically fit, mentally and emotionally stable. He never demands of me anything that would cause these basic goals to be missed. Difficulties, trials, and hardships in my life were only there because of a lack of faith on my part to believe that Jesus truly wants me to be happy. I was convicted when I read that quote. Later, he writes that the teaching of Jesus was often harsh. He was not a preacher of convenience, but hardship. Not a preacher of comfort, but suffering. And as I was looking at that, this text and and that quote a little bit, I, I was sort of had to reckon with the fact that a lot of my life is oriented towards my own preparation and provision for my own life. And I'm not, I'm not going out on a limb saying that is 100% bad. I was just thinking about my life, thinking, man, a lot of my time is spent on how can I prepare for or provide for myself or my family in these or that moments. And so I'm like a chronic researcher. I don't know if any of you guys are, are this as well. So for instance, when we were looking for a house that we've been in for a couple years, uh, just down the street, a couple blocks away, I like, Sherry hates this sometimes about me, but I, would, I spent months on Zillow, Redfin, Craigslist, everything, like trying to find the exact perfect thing, or like I'm calling realtors, I'm calling property management, and it like consumes my life. When we were uh, buying a car for like kind of our, our first version of a family car, I like scoured the internet for like the perfect car, safety ratings, horsepower, like the right amount of space. Like I went and would like test drive things. I'd bring her along and she like can't stand that process in me at all. And I feel like there's like a whole nother set of, of those kind of things I'm going to have to be deciding on and researching. And like my life can be consumed with researching the exact right uh, need to be met for our family. And I was just so convinced convicted uh, in this text, but how often does that trickle into my life with God, or even how often do those moments prevent me from engaging in God's mission? Because I don't have all the questions figured out. I don't have all the needs met. I've loved having uh, two friends uh, in our life. Some of you guys know them, Scott and Alexis, who are preparing to to go out uh, to be missionaries in, in Laos and and I've just loved hearing their story. It's been a long story for them of training and preparation. And I love how they've taken so many steps of faith, not having everything figured out. They moved across this country to get some training and had a baby in a strange city. 
And now they're preparing to go to a a place they've spent minimal time in with people they're still getting to know and just convinced this is where God calls us. We don't have to have everything figured out. But what I love about their story is as far as they've continued to walk out in faith, God has provided for them and is preparing them. How often are my concerns about preparations and provisions preventing me from engaging in God's mission? I also love how the reality uh, of God's mission um, involves a lot of people. Uh, And I actually love in these couple of verses how we get a glimpse of how others play a part into Jesus' mission. It's not just the sent ones that go. There's another group of people that are talked about in these couple of verses, right? Those who would or would not receive them into their homes and show hospitality and generosity and maybe providing for some of their needs as well. And we have this beautiful picture throughout Scripture that gospel goers depend on gospel givers. Like there are people who are going to be on the front lines forging new ground, taking on new adventures, grand gospel adventures, and there are going to be people who make that possible. I think we have seen that firsthand as a new church in Ventura, where we have been able to come here and forge new ground and make relationships with people and be out on the front lines of mission because people have financially provided for us. People have sacrificed their time to come and serve alongside of us. People have shared their gifts and their talents with us. And because those who may not be the ones being sent in that moment still feel called to be a part of this mission, they give and give generously. We've been the recipients of that story, and this year is going to be a year where we move into a greater giving story. How can we empower other people on their gospel missions? How can we send more people? How can we be generous with our own money and not just be takers, but be givers as well? We hear just a sweet picture we see here that those going out as sent ones need the people who would receive them. And just a a little bit towards the end of this chapter that Jesus essentially says to the givers to keep your heads up without you, the mission fails. Look at the very end of Matthew chapter 10 and verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus equates receiving the goers the sent ones, as receiving Jesus himself and the Father himself. This is a huge piece to the gospel story, that people who go need people who are going to send them. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is to live intentionally and walk through open doors. Verse 11, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So last week we saw this intentionality begins with prayer. That's where it starts. And praying has this way, praying intentionally has this way of heightening our awareness of what God is doing and increasing our boldness to step into those things. 
Paul has talked about open doors a ton before in his letters. In 1 Corinthians 16, he writes, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And then again in Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Intentionally devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful, thankful. And Paul says, and pray for us too. Paul was intentional, and while he was writing Colossians, he was in prison, and he was still praying for open doors for the gospel. Which leads us to our our third kind of reality of, of Christian mission that Paul shows us and Jesus shows us that we are to expect real opposition to mission. Read those last two verses with me. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The reality is open doors don't mean no opposition. And a lot of times I've found in my life that when I see opposition, it's usually because God's got me right where he wants me. And I'm affecting kingdom change and the enemy is not happy. Okay, so there's a difference between missional opposition and stupid decisions, right? Can we be on, like, we're not talking about just like God's going to honor your bad, terrible behavior, but as we are stepping out in faith, praying intentionally, searching for those open doors, and sensing or seeing opposition to that mission, chances are it's because we're affecting real change, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Opposition doesn't mean that door isn't open, but chances are it means you're right where God wants you, because you're being effective For his kingdom. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Paul instructs us how to guard ourselves from the attacks of the enemies. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, meaning we can expect the evil one will send flaming darts our way. But Paul in Romans 8 says it's worth it, right? You guys know this verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. To the glory that is to be revealed to us. Real Christian mission is dangerous. It's divisive, but it's worth giving our very lives. Jesus tells us our motive for that mission is compassion, to let our hearts break for those that do not know him, that are living outside God's desired plan for their life. We are to be compassionate. We're to pray. We're to work. And our goal is that God would do the impossible through broken people like you and me. But through us, he'd reach the world and Ventura. And our call as Christians in this mission of Jesus is to pray intentionally and to obey and be ready to be the answer to our own prayers. And so I think there's some, from this text and, and from last week's text, there's some really clear calls for us, and it's to pray. <laughs> pray more. Pray with your, by yourself, with groups, your community, with us as a, as a gathered people. Pray intentionally and expectantly that God hears us and answers us. 
and be ready to obey? Are you working the harvest with the Lord of the harvest? Are you on mission in your communities, whatever community that is? Are you taking seriously the gospel grace that has been shown to you and showing that to other people? So what I want to do is, is John and, and Lauren and Joel are going to come lead us in a, in a time of response. Uh, but before they do that, and before I walk through how we respond, I would like you guys to stand. Because I'm going to do what Jesus starts to do in this passage, and I want to commission us for the work at hand. I feel like there's a moment we need to break in the story, just receive that commissioning of Jesus. And so would you guys close your eyes, uh, pray with me, or don't close your eyes, doesn't matter to me, but... Uh, would you, though, put your hands out in kind of the, the receiving posture? We do this from time to time just to posture our hearts, to say, God, we want to receive from you. Father, as, as we are learning about what mission in your kingdom looks like and, and how you send out your disciples, would you prepare us and equip us? You call us ambassadors of the ministry of reconciliation. Would you equip us to join you in reconciling people that are far from you back to you? Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You tell us in the book of Acts that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And Jesus, you end this gospel account of Matthew saying, therefore, go and make disciples. And Father, in this just sweet, still moment, while we're considering the truths of this text, would you commission us for the work at hand? Would you send us this evening, not just singing your praises, but equipped for the mission you have for us? As we head to our class, our families, our workplace tomorrow morning, would we see those places with a renewed intentionality for what you can do? We are all sent ones out into the world to our families, our friends, our jobs. Would we live as ones who are to be sent? And would we step into that sentness with your authority? expecting that you will prepare us and equip us for every conversation, every situation, every moment. God, would we leave empowered and encouraged and equipped for the mission you have for us to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Amen.